Hello, friends. Welcome to my podcast presentation for my Letters 3703 class with Dr. Schumacher. I have entitled this presentation, The Unsung Women of the Black Power Movement. For those who don't know, the Black Power Movement is the period of time during and after the Civil Rights Movement from the 1960s to the 1970s. The Civil Rights Movement was popularized by Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, the Women's Political Council, and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Church values were a big part of the Civil Rights Movement. Many people were active and organized through their churches. This movement focused on ideals of nonviolent protesting, respectability politics, and the integration of Black people in social spaces, such as with the Montgomery bus boycott. The Black Power Movement got its start in the 1960s, but some of the first mentions of the Black Power happened in 1954 through Richard Wright's nonfiction work, Black Power, then picked up again in 1965 by Alabama's Lowndes County's Freedom Organization with their political slogan, Black Power for Black People. Stokely Carmichael and his fellow SNCC members began championing this call at the 1966 demonstration in Greenwood, Mississippi. It is important to note that the civil rights movement was not the only social movement for black equality. There have been many movements fighting for Afro-Americans' rights to exist in America without discrimination. Additionally, the black power movement was not the civil rights movement's ugly stepsister. Rhonda Y. Williams, the author of Concrete Demands, describes black power as politics as the politics in which black people placed less faith in white goodwill and paid more attention to the power structures causing them to demand authority and resources. Those who embraced the black power movement took on its call for economic empowerment, racial pride, self-determination, and cultural institutions. Afro-Americans refused to accept the societal norms that dictated their dehumanization, rather demanding equality in all forms. But what about the black women, Lily? Well, I'm here to tell you that. The Black Power Movement, along with the Civil Rights Movement, tend to be masculinized through history, meaning that history tends to favor male activists and reflect positively or negatively on them, leaving Black women out. Though we see Black women with their afros and their leather outfits, we haven't recently, we haven't until recently talked about the women who work tirelessly behind these movements. Women like Angela Davis, a Scottish actor who are most notably known, but other people might know of Catherine Cleaver and maybe even Elaine Brown, who I'll be discussing later. But the experiences of women in the Black Power movement have gone mainly unrecognized and unheard. Bell Hooks wrote that the Black Power movement sought to create a social structure where Black liberation was synonymous with with the uprise of the Black patriarch, controlling the family, kin, and community. Thus, in the interest of the Black of the movement, Black women's relationships with white men were monitored. However, Black male leaders encouraged Black women to use their sexuality and their bodies against the enemies for the cause. Furthermore, at a time where eugenics were highly at play, Black men encouraged Black women to carry their pregnancies to term, stating that to do otherwise to was to give power to whites. 
these sexually liberated black men and women did not equally share the weight of their actions. Black women in the movement, which we particularly see within the Black Panther Party, often had to become single parents, relying on the other women in the movement or their family members to help out. Additionally, the Black the media did not look towards Black women. They saw the empowerment of the community largely as a male-dominated space. The Black Power Movement was perceived as primarily a militant male organization, while most of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense members were women. Not only were they women, but they were working-class, local Black women who were buoyed by this radical call. They primarily spoke out against police brutality and welfare rights in their local communities. Black women began to expand Black power theories and Black feminist ideologies to create a women-centered racial identity, radical identity, and political agenda. This led to the second wave of radical Black feminism. Black women writers and organizations like the Third World Women's Alliance and the Women's Black Women's Liberation Committee served as platforms to push gender equality and anti-sexism work to the front of the BPM. The Black Panther Party newsletter, uh, Black Women carved out a space for themselves called the Sister Section. This section sought to reinvent Black womenhood and what it looked like in the revolution, though they had different ideas. Ashley Farmer, the author of Remaking Black Power, notes that Black women began adopting and advocating for radical stances centralized in the Black Power movement well before the Black Power movement got its start. Black women developed and sustained Black Power-style radicalism before and alongside the civil rights movement of the 1950s and well before the rise of the New Left movement in the 1960s and the 1970s. Additionally, Black women continued to theorize and enact Black power principles after 1975 and the demise of well-known Black power organizations. So I have selected two women who I best and feel embody women and their efforts during the Black power movement, and particularly what those struggles look like for them. These women are Gloria Richardson and Elaine Brown. So if you scroll over to the Gloria Richardson slide, you will see an iconic picture of Richardson taken during the Cambridge movement. This photo was taken in 1963 at the peak of her activism. This photo to me was incredibly empowering. The men in front of Richardson is the face of white segregation and supremacy. Um, by trying to block Richardson's path, this man is embodying the white state violence against Black Americans. He and his fellow guardsmen are trying desperately to stop this protest, but it is clear by Richardson's demeanor that they are no longer in control. Her posture in this photo exudes confidence and composure. She acknowledges his presence by batting away the gun in her face, but refuses to look him in his eyes. She refuses to give him the respect that his position demands, and this is a subtle protest to the state, the position that Black Americans were rapidly taking up during this time of self-determination. This image speaks to the rise of the Black Power Movement as Black Americans became more empowered in their racial identity. 
They weren't going to take disrespect or respect the systems in place perpetuating their oppression. Gloria Richardson's position in this time also suggests that women would also have a place in this movement. The man standing behind her, staring daringly into the face of the white National Guardsman, portrays an air of defiance and collective identity that gave rise to the Black Power Movement. This image is well at depicting what the Black Power Movement um, was supposed to be, in my opinion. Looking at this picture, I had to know who the woman was who made such a calm act of defiance. My research led me to Gloria Richardson, civil rights activist, black power activist, and the basis of many of the black power movement's future actions. Though Richardson and her family were wealthy, that doesn't mean that Richardson wasn't a target for discrimination. In her essay, People Passing Through Me, Richardson notes that her father and uncle died because of Cambridge's rich segregation history. Black people could not receive medical treatment in Cambridge, and Black doctors weren't permitted to work in the hospital. But it was well known that the nearest hospital that accepted Black patients, John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, not only a two-hour drive, but was also known to experiment on Black patients, wasn't necessarily the best choice for uh, Black Cambridge residents to patron. Though Richardson's family was wealthy, the overwhelming majority of Black people in Cambridge were not. Some of the Black residents reported that they had to resort to living in actual chicken shacks because there was no place that they could afford to live. Additionally, unemployment rates uh, among Cambridge Black residents were about 60%, so extremely high. So in 1961, Snickfield reporters came to Cambridge to help organize the Black community and protest unfair conditions. With their help, the Black people of Cambridge launched the Cambridge Nonviolent Action Committee, which continued the work they began. Richardson, influenced by her daughter's activism, not only helped form this organization, but also spearheaded it along with Inez Grubb after her cousin Freddie stepped down from the position. Richardson reported that she once accepted this position. Uh, many people came to her with job offerings, even some prospects that she had previously been denied. At one point, the governor of Maryland even sent Senator Verdo to welcome Richardson with a Senate seat if she stopped the activism work. Some of the challenges she faced while taking on activism work weren't uh, ones that her male counterparts dealt with. Richardson continued to be active in the Cambridge movement because her daughter and her mother helped out with household chores that she was still expected to do. I thought this was rather interesting. As a woman spearheading the movement for change in her community, she was still expected to have dinner on the table by six and raise her two daughters. While male activists could lead, leave male, many social responsibilities behind to focus behind focus on the movement with little backlash, women were still expected to come home and cook and take care of the family. While CNAC demonstrations were strictly nonviolent, Black Cambridge residents were ready and willing to use violence to protect themselves. White mobs tended to start assaulting Black people at night, so Black residents would strike back to defend their own. 
Many conservative black activists looked down on Richardson and the Cambridge movement because of their violent uh, protests in response to the white mobs. An old friend of Richardson even told her that the organizers for the March on Washington for Jobs didn't want her at the march because they believed she would turn it into a violent protest. They also called her some very misogynistic and sexist names. While Richardson was doing great things to help her community, other Black organizers sought to degrade her and downplay her contributions. But it was not only her. The organizers at the march did not want to include women, but at last minute, they did so to present a unified front to the public. Honored guests such as Gloria Richardson and other women were only permitted one minute to speak. The march organizers also policed what Richardson wore, telling her that she must wear a dress with a full skirt, dress shoes, and gloves, and a hat to march in D.C. People of all races across the U.S. did not feel that racism in the North was as prevalent or discriminatory to Black people as it was in the South. However, this misconception kept Northern Black Americans out of conversation to radical change. CNAC members led by Richardson participated in what Richardson called creative chaos, where she and her team would use unconventional tactics to confuse um, white politicians to keep them from disrupting the Cambridge movement. Richardson took the intimate knowledge that she had of the Black experience in Cambridge to advocate for change. She asked for affordable housing, welfare benefits, and the integration of public schools and accommodations. CNAC activists crippled the town's economy with their demonstrations in segregated restaurants and boycotts of federal and also demonstrated against federal subsidized businesses and more. The Kennedy administration watched the Cambridge movement closely because Cambridge was so close to D.C. President Kennedy and the Attorney General Kennedy spoke with MLK and the national leaders of SNCC and NAACP to settle the protests in Cambridge. Richardson made it very clear that MLK Jr., SNCC, and the NAACP were not doing the work in Cambridge, so they did not get a say in what uh, progress would look like in that community. If the Kennedy administration wanted to reach a resolution, they would have to speak directly to the members of CNAC. Cambridge had yet to be integrated because of the Maryland State Senate excused Dorchester County, where Cambridge was located, from enforcing the Maryland's public accommodation bill. However, to get this bill into the charter, the local legislator required that the bill be put to a vote amongst all the uh, Cambridge residents. Though the Black community in Cambridge was very active at the polls, they only made up one-third of the voting age residents. Furthermore, Richardson and her fellow CNAC members did not believe that the white majority should have a say on Black people's rights, so Richardson ordered that CNAC boycott voting of the bill. People all across the nation could not understand Richardson's tactic. Why would she boycott this bill that was supposed to help Black Cambridge residents? All kinds of activists and political leaders sought to lend their advice to Richardson to tell her that boycotting the bill was not in her best interest. Many people wanted Martin Luther King Jr. to sway her and to stop the boycott, but Richardson did no such thing. Things got so tense that SNCC and both the local and 
uh, national chapters of the NAACP tried to cut Richardson out of CNAC. The bill did not end up passing, but a year later, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. So Richardson boycotted the bill under the ethos that a first-class citizen does not beg for freedom. A first-class citizen does not need to plead with the white power structure to give them something that that whites have no power to give or to take away. Human rights are human rights, not white rights. While her actions were highly unpopular, Richardson's demand for respect and the refusal to allow the local government to paint her and her fellow activists as fools was fearless. Previously, the civil rights movement had broadly circulated around voting rights, desegregation of public accommodations, and to secure legal recognition for Black American citizenship rights. But Richardson's focus on social justice, economic justice for the black citizens of Cambridge while demanding respect signaled a a start of the black power movement. Now we'll be moving into Elaine Brown. So Elaine Brown lived in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania with her mother, Dorothy Clark, during her childhood. Her mother was actually an activist herself. She did union organizing work. However, her mother pushed anti-Black stereotypes and beliefs onto Brown during her childhood, causing her not to identify with other Black people. It wasn't until Brown moved to California that she understood the importance of the civil rights movement, thanks to her white boyfriend at the time, Jay Kennedy. Brown gives quite a bit of credit credit (laughs) to Kennedy for her race consciousness. After their relationship ended, Brown got involved with her local Black Student Alliance and wrote for the Black Congress newspaper called Harambee. In 1968, Elaine Brown attended her first Black Panther Party meeting. From there, she threw herself into the organization. Brown helped organize the free breakfast for children, free busing to prisons, and then the free legal aid programs. Elaine Brown also served as the editor for the Southern Californian branch of the Black Panther publication. Lastly, Brown served as the Deputy Minister of Information before assuming the role of chairwoman for the Black Panther Party. While Elaine Brown was empowered and enjoyed the work she did with the BPP, she was well aware of the gender divide in the organization. While the BPM as a whole welcomed Black women's thoughts and ideas, the BPM did not push put much weight in women's ideas. Elaine stated that in her in her book, A Taste of Power, a black woman's history that a woman was considered at best irrelevant. A woman asserting herself was a pariah. If a black woman assumed the role of leadership, she was said to be eroding black manhood, to be hindering the progress of the black race. She was the enemy of the black people. She knew that she would have to muster up something mighty to manage the Black Panther Party. At times, she had to sell her body to further the cause. It was an unspoken understanding amongst women in the BPP that their bodies were commodities for the party. Though it was frowned upon for Black women to have interracial relationships with men, white men, um, it was okay for them to use those relationships for the betterment of the BPP. Additionally, Black women in the BPP were discouraged from having abortions as they were the creators of the new nation. This belief did nothing to encourage the Black men of the party to be present in their child's life. 
Brown's daughter, Erica Brown, was fathered by a man in the BPP, but him, like Elaine's father, did not have any interest in his offspring's life. While Brown enjoyed being a part of the BPP, she recognized that later in she recognized later in life that she got caught up with group thinking and beliefs. She recounts a few instances where she did not act in a manner she was proud of. Eventually, she cut ties with the organization because she felt she lost herself. The lives and experiences of not only these two women, but the women in the Black Power Movement depict gendered struggles and little recognition for the many tasks accomplished in the name of bettering Americans' lives. These women made many immense strides that have left a mark on our lives today. They, as you can see, these women have had some unique experiences compared to the lives that we've seen of Malcolm X and Stokely Carmel and other Black Power male activists. Though they were ignored, slut-shamed by their fellow African Americans and given little opportunity to lead within the Black Panther Party. Despite that, Black women were still empowered and continued to do the work long before and after the prime time for the BPM. They recreated what they thought Black, women, black womanhood should look like and fought for radical change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and learning more about Black women's lives during the Black Power Movement. Thank you for listening.